and welcome to Winter Faith with Frazier. I'm your host, Andy Frazier. Thanks for checking out my podcast. If this is your first time listening, I really appreciate it. And if you're a regular of the show, I want you to know how much I appreciate your support and willingness to listen to my podcast. I'm really excited. This is episode number seven, so getting a little bit into a rhythm of doing this, still trying to figure out scheduling and what to talk about and content. One of the things that I've gotten a lot of feedback about is just kind of keeping it in some sense of order, which is difficult if you know how my brain works a little bit. I'm definitely a verbal processor, and I like doing this kind of work where I kind of can get my thoughts out. So today's episode number seven is titled A Little Exercise in Theological Reflection. So kind of a long title. I went to Harding School of Theology. I graduated in 2014. I spent six years in graduate school, and by the end of the six years, I had a Master's of Divinity. These six years were some of the most difficult years of my life up to this point, and I kind of feel like I spent six years in and out of a spiritual desert, of a spiritual wilderness. By the end of my six years at Harding, I felt I had adequate training academically, emotionally, relationally, but still a lot of work to be done. But what I had is I had tools, I had relationships, I had resources, I had people, I had churches. I kind of had everything that I think a person can need that a person needs to continue growing. So I think a lot of it was tools and resources that Harding gave me along with uh, with relationships. And so I wanted to kind of just think about this idea. Some I've heard the idea, not so much in my circles, but kind of outside of my circles, that seminary is nicknamed cemetery for a good reason. And like I said, I had a kind of spiritual desert experience when I was, when I was in seminary um, studying God. And I'm not the only one. I've talked to other people who um, learning about God and learning about the academic side of theology brought them into a lot of uh, kind of questioning and doubt and skepticism, maybe darkness into the stuff that's in the Bible, darkness that represents what the world can be sometimes, what humanity can be sometimes. And so really, I wrestled with doubt and feel and, and felt distant from God during my studies, but I was not alone in also being challenged to wrestle and and doubt and ask questions and I was very encouraged to kind of dive into scripture, dive into my view of God and dive into my view of of God's world. And one of the things that I was taught is when somebody told me about kind of going to grad school was okay, are you going to grad school to get a better job or are you going to grad school to learn about God at a deeper level? And oftentimes I do hear people saying, oh, I want to go, I want to go to seminary, um, and I want, I want to do this for some academic pursuit, and that's good. But really, I think hopefully it's not just an academic pursuit, but it's a pursuit of God. It's a pursuit 
of not only the knowledge and the mind of God, but the heart of God. And so we have to remember that there's not just an academic side of Scripture, but there's also emotional and a relational side of Scripture. We have to remember that God is not academic, but God is emotional and relational. At least that's my belief. And if I think if you look at the Bible as this kind of overriding narrative of God's rescue mission for humanity, of God's rescue mission through relationship with humanity, I think that's a strong way of understanding what the text of the Bible is, what this library of books are and is and can be used for today. So it may uh, come as a surprise to you that seminary is often talked about as a desert period, but I think what is not a surprise to you is that graduate school and seminary invites us to ask difficult questions. It asks us to engage in the evil in the world. It asks us to debate the nature of God. It asks us to debate, debate the nature of Scripture. My first occurrence of this, at least one of my first occurrences, was reading uh, a commentary on Exodus by Terence Fretheim and a teacher of mine. He had me, uh, well, not me, but the whole class, read this commentary. And in the commentary on Exodus, it brought to question whether God knew the future. And I'd always grown up with the idea, I was always grown up and taught that, that God knows everything, including the future. So this idea that God didn't know the future, that very much changed how I looked at the nature of God. So if God didn't know the future, what does that say about prayer? What does that say about my relationship with God, if God doesn't know the future? And this caused me to really question and wrestle a lot. And I probably read that commentary on Exodus three times during that probably summer or fall semester that that was. And I, I kind of keep it on my shelf, and it's a book that, that I look to often. And that's something that really, for me, helped me because it created an optimism in my relationship with God. It, commu it communicated to me an optimism about the future of my life and the future of, of my pursuit with God, the future of my prayer life, that, that prayer can change things and that prayer can change things because it really allows the future to be open. But for some people, that was not an optimism. That was a scary thought to think that the future was not um, mapped out. And so I think that's just one example of something that really pushed me to think more deeply. But like with anything, we always relate our experiences of our current life with what we're taking in. So if you're going through something with your family, it affects how you go to work. If you're going through something uh, maybe in your marriage, it affects how you maybe deal with other people in your life. If you're going through something at church and you're not really connected to church, that might cause you to feel less connected in your marriage. There's always these interconnectedness of life. And what I wanted to talk about a little bit today about how um, Harding School of Theology shaped my faith was in a I went from a lack of expression because I had a lack of expression from shame and sadness and kind of just events in my life and the lack of storytelling in my life because of the shame and sadness. And then I began to share my stories 
And although this took, like I said, a journey of six years that I was in school, I think by the sixth year, I think it probably took me six years to learn this, but I really am made to share stories that we must share our stories and I must share my stories. And there's so many stories, but so little time. So I have really good friends in my life. And let's say I have 10 stories that I want to tell them. And I really only share maybe one story that day. Um, so I want to share a few of my stories. My first day at seminary in Memphis, it was probably about 100 degrees. It was July of 2008, very, very hot. And my roommates did not offer to help move my stuff. I remember sweating and just being so miserable as I moved everything into my apartment and no one really helped me. And I finished moving my last, um, finished losing my, my last book. And, and I do want to say that's not anybody's fault that nobody helped me. I didn't really ask for help. So that's kind of on me. Just want to clarify that. But I, uh, I moved in my last book and I went and I sat down on the couch in the living room and my roommate said, Oh, do you, do you want help? And I was like, well, uh, I just finished moving. So it's not really that helpful. Um, it's just kind of interesting thing to say after I'd been moving back and forth the whole time. So I, uh, sat downstairs, watched TV with my roommate, introduced myself. Then I went upstairs in my room and I sat on my bed first day, first moment at, at Harding and I sat on my bed, this is July of 2008, just graduated from undergrad, spent the summer in Africa, came back to Memphis, Tennessee. I felt like it was hotter in Memphis, Tennessee than, than Africa. And I sit down on my bed and I just start to weep. And I just say, what the heck am I doing here? My girlfriend just broke up with me. Do I really want to get a master's in theology? What am I doing here? What is my plan for life? I'm in this new city. I'm in this new town. I'm in this new school. I don't have a job and I have a school, but really a lot of deep trust in God at that point. Just what am I doing? My heart and soul were just crying out for answers and I was crying out of my bed. And I, in that moment, I got a phone call from my friend and I lamented during that phone call. So that was my first, first moment was this, just this deep, deep kind of sadness. And I got a phone call from a friend, and then I got a phone call from a family, and this family took me out to eat. So that's my first, I would say, that might be my first 30 minutes, was this deep sadness, a phone call from a friend, and then another family calling me and saying, hey, can we take you out to eat? That is just such a beautiful image of six years of my life, and maybe even more but of this idea of this deep sadness and then somebody calling, somebody reaching out to me and then not only one person, but then an entire family, an entire community taking me out for food. And I don't remember having any deep conversations that day, but just the fact that that family reached out to me that very night when I very much needed it, incredible. Also from that same semester, the first time I spoke in chapel, the first time I spoke at chapel at Harding School of Theology, was on Psalm 62, and in this psalm, I'm not going to read it to you, but it's a story of kind of a guy questioning and crying out to God, and in my opinion, he's lost and he's trying to find God, and I so much related to this idea, so I started reading that text in chapel, and I, I don't even know really what my plan was at that point, 
Um, but I was just going to get up there, read that text, and, and, and talk about that text. And I just started crying as I'm reading the text. I didn't even get through any thoughts at all. No sermon, no exegesis, no application, none of that. Just reading the text of Psalm 62, just start crying. And I couldn't get through the sermon. I couldn't get through chapel. So Dr. Hufford, the dean at that time, he told everybody to come up and everybody prayed over me. I had really close friends from undergrad that prayed over me during that time they were in that chapel. I had people and professors that would be very important people into my life. I didn't really know Dr. Hufford very well, but all these people come and surround me. And Dr. Hufford says, you know, he really shared his heart today. He really opened up and he was honest in chapel today. And we really appreciate that. And so we're going to honor that and pray over Andy. Remarkable experience. Remarkable. And many times during Harding, I had friends and families from churches. I had friends and coworkers. I had professors. I had staff members, families from church that just reached out to me as I was going through whatever I was going through. I got so many hugs. I got so much liberation out of kind of this oppression that sadness can bring and as i think about god's mission being a liberation and a rescue of his people that are enslaved and in sin and and what kind of the shackles we hold in our life whatever those may be that god's really on this plan to to rescue us from that and so i had so many people that listened to me when i was in the desert and they let me be in the desert they let me cry they let me talk they let me complain they let me isolate myself because sometimes that's what I did. Sometimes I just ran away. And I and I talked about last week how one of the ways that I would run away and isolate was through um, sexual sin, through pornography, that that was one way that, that I would kind of escape. And I, it's kind of weird to think this, but I look at this now, you know, as I look back on, on 2008 to 2014 or 2008 to 2012, however I want to look at that, is I see people who let me be myself and so we talked about shame is a lack of expression a lack of your true self a lack of storytelling in your life so part of my storytelling is to acknowledge that hey people let me do what i needed to do at that time and could it have been differently i think i could have escaped less absolutely i think i could have had a healthier um journey maybe during that time but what i really embraced were families that had me over for dinner families that took me out and had coffee with me people who who had coffee with me people who let me share my story and let me talk because i'm a person i like to talk i like to just talk about nonsense i like to talk with really no i don't know where i'm going sometimes i would say most of the time but that's just what God has put in me. That's what God's placed in my heart. So one of the, my experiences that so many people have heard about in my life was my relationship with women and how I had such a difficult time um, dating women and then my friends would be there for me and then my heart would get broken by the person I was dating. And that happened all the time. You can ask my really good friend, Gavin Lefebvre, 
Gavin, it's your birthday today. Happy birthday. I need to make sure to send you something. But Gavin, so many times, Gavin listened to me complain about relationships in my life, whether it's 2006, 2008, 2010, 2011. Gavin was always there as I went through all these relationships, as I had my heart broken time and time again. And one of the most difficult things is having your heart broken in a relationship. But one of the way, well, I don't know if it's way more difficult, but what I experienced in another time, which is still very fresh, is when you have to engage in another relationship, or I guess you don't have to, but you choose to put yourself in another relationship. That can be so scary. That can be so scary. But if we really believe that we want to be people of relational, if we want to be relational people like I do, then it's going to be scary. It's going to be hard to jump into new relationships and and you do have that fear of having your heart broken again but i choose to still engage because i see the value of relationships so not only was i going through my own emotional pain that people gave me space but also people um, listened to me talk about my relationships and my emotional state and another thing <clears throat> from an emotional standpoint was in 2013, my family had four straight months where we had one person die in all those uh, consecutive months. So that was a very difficult semester. <clears throat> that was in 2013. <clears throat> and as I think about those people that I lost in my family, my spiritual family, my family on my dad's side, my family on my mom's side, just grueling, grueling. Not only to have four very good people in my life die, but to go and witness to them and to be a testimony to them and to my family of going to those funerals, the travel, the emotional pain, the time, and it always is completely worth it, but that is difficult to go through. <clears throat> And so that also shaped me because that kind of that that cycle and that semester of mourning and loss in my life, I think propelled me to what I would do for the rest of my life, which is a big, big thought to have. I always thought I would work in churches and to a certain extent I always believe I will work in churches, maybe just not as a professional um, minister and a paid minister, but I always do some sort of work in the church. But what it did to me, that those experiences of having my heart broken through relationships and having my heart broken through the, the loss and death of very good friends, was that it propelled me to spend more time with those who I could spend time with. It propelled me to have the people in my life that I could have relationships with to, to put more effort into those relationships. So at this time, I just kind of want to read over some families that were so important to me. And I know I'm going to forget some families, but as I look back on Harding Grad School, as I look back on Memphis, Tennessee, I want to kind of just honor the people that really carried me through some very difficult times in my life. So the Pittmans, the Carters, the Greens, the Gurleys. 
Justin and Charlie, Rusty and Rachel, Bob and Andrea, the Parkers, the Goddards, the Hollies, the Haybakers, the Ruddies, the Taylors, the Emersons, the Hay family. These people really honored me. The Ross family, Raleigh Community Church, the Costins, the Dolls. These families honored me, the Dormandies, throughout all my time in those six years. And I will have ongoing relationships with all of these people in my life. And I know that I'm forgetting some. I know I didn't do everything by name. But I just think there's something about being able to say those words for me that is healing. And so I want to kind of turn it back as we think, what are you going through? Who are the people in your life that can bring healing to you? Who are the families in your life that can bring healing to you? Who are the friends? Who are the churches? Who are the communities? Who are the co-workers? How can God heal you through relationship? Because if there's one thing that I learned is that Christian community can really bring us healing through relationships. Many of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great, great Christian. And he has his very, very deep and thoughtful book, Life Together. And he says the physical presence of other Christians is the source of joy and strength to the believer. The physical presence of other Christians is the source of joy and strength to the believer. There's something about that physical presence that not only brings us joy, but gives us strength. And that strength does not mean that we power through everything and we get by everything without any wounds, without any pain, without any sorrow. This is a man who lived through the Holocaust and saw many people, um, including his own life, um, lost in the Holocaust. But he understood the strength is being together in those difficult, difficult times for people. One of the things that I look for is how to best serve. And Henry Nowen, another great author that has been influenced me he says the christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self that's what i'm trying to do i want to be a christian leader of the future who is completely irrelevant and all i do is i stand in this world with nothing to offer but his but my own vulnerable self. That's the way that God's love is revealed in this world that we live in. So it's not by my academics. It's not by my knowledge. It's not by my ability to counsel people. It's not my ability to serve people in some way and, and through all my talent. But it's to be my own vulnerable self and to open myself up to the world. One of the difficult things that, it, that I experienced after 2013, when I had so many deaths in my family and friends, in my life personally, losing people 
in my life that I care deeply about is that I never fully healed and grieved during those years very quickly. And so in 2014, I accepted a job that I just wasn't, or I should say in 2012, I accepted a job I wasn't quite ready for um, because of other um, problems in my life of not dealing with grief, not dealing with emotion. So 2012, um, I actually lost a, uh, a job at my church. And from that point on, I had kind of a dark, a dark time. And then I had so many friends pass away in 2013. So really, I've been in the desert, in and out of the desert so much and in kind of spiritual wilderness so much that I almost get lost up in the timeline, which that just happened to me. Got 2012 and 13 confused. So what happened was I was able to heal, but it took a lot of time and it took a lot of effort. And healing doesn't just come from time. Time heals all wounds that can be true, but you still have to work during all those times. So I had Christian community that helped me heal from the past. I had people who allowed me to doubt and question God. I had people who created space for God to work in my life. And I served people that were hurting. Um, Richard Beck is a man who is a winter Christian as well, and, and I'm very much a winter Christian who wrestles with kind of doubt and confusion and disorder. And he says, okay, if you want what has been helpful, he sent me an email. He said, what has been helpful to me is to go out and serve people who are less fortunate than myself, who don't have as much privilege, who don't have as much money, who don't have as much academic resources or financial resources or job resources, everything that I've given, families, um, maybe a place to stay, food, just all the things that I've been given in my life because of God is to go out and serve. So I had an opportunity in the summer of 13, kind of in the in the midst of a, a lot of my grief, to go and, and serve a very small um, church in, in uh, Memphis, Raleigh, technically Raleigh, Raleigh Community Church, and, and that semester was very impactful on me. And then I got, um, because I was um, serving people different than myself from different perspective, and then as some of you know, and I've mentioned here before, working as a hospital chaplain for the last two years and continuing to, to pursue hospital chaplaincy because I'm around so many people that are hurting. And I've often heard this thing, hurt people hurt people. If you're a hurt person, if you're not a healed person, you're going to do more damage to people that aren't healed. And you, don't, you I don't know if we're ever fully, fully healed, but I think we come to a place of healing through Christian community, through space, through people letting us serve them and working through our own issues emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Uh, when we get lost, it's so important to serve people. And so I'm really in pursuit of how, of how to serve people that are grieving. And as I look back on what has this journey of, of my first seven podcasts been about... As I continue to learn, I continue to learn and embrace the fact that I don't know a lot. I continue to lean into my discomfort. I continue to show up and be my authentic self and offer what I have. And hopefully through offering my own 
vulnerable self that there can be about there can bring about some healing and you know this is i've heard it said jerry seinfeld says that um i think robin williams that maybe stand-up comedy is his form of therapy um for robin williams that didn't seem to be enough to keep him from from the pain in his life but uh for other for other people like seinfeld it seems to have been enough in in certain ways um so what is your way of therapy what is your way of healing what is your stand-up comedy what is your podcasting what does your work look like how are you healing in your life are you investing in relationships are you in in allowing uh god to to work in your doubt in your space in your maybe emotional pain or are you trying to escape from it so like i said harding school of theology was vital to me because i had so many people in my life that really invested in me and they invested in me because they cared about who i was and they allowed me to go through a journey they allowed me to speak my truth as i was going through it and i had people that were willing willing to listen i think i'm going to leave it there i really really hope that you have gained something um, from some of my words today and this was maybe a little bit more preachy than some of my other ones but I just encourage you, please, please leave your feedback. You can leave feedback on uh, iTunes at the iTunes store, Winter Faith with Fraser. I really appreciate everybody's support to continue to listen. And I really, really hope you get something out of this today because I know I am. So this has been Winter Faith with Fraser and Andy out. Catch you later. Years ago, the early thirties, there was trust.